At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then, book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable to you want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we release these special episodes where we look back at Risk content from our earlier years. Now, for a long time now, the first two years' worth of Risk episodes, the ones from October of 2009 through October of 2011, have been behind a paywall. But that's been a little confusing for a lot of Risk fans who are always telling us they didn't even know those first two years worth of episodes existed. So we thought it would be fun if every other Thursday now we reran an entire episode from the very earliest days. Now, as we review these throwbacks, remember many of these recordings were made over a decade ago. I just ask that you keep that historical context in mind. Today in 2020, there's a vastly different consciousness. Risk has always asked our storytellers to err on the side of not being too cautious, to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible. That said, we also want our storytellers to be compassionate in their storytelling. But even in stories where you hear an overall compassionate context to the sharing, you might still notice some moments that strike you as cringeworthy today. A lot of these storytellers, and myself as the host of some of the oldest episodes, would probably have handled those moments differently today. As always, the title of the series, Risk, is itself a trigger warning. This week, the ninth ever Risk episode to appear in the world. It is from January 26 of 2010, and it's called Breaking the Rules. I think it sounded like Risk. Or was it something like Risk? I thought I put it on a day. 
crap. I can't remember what it's called. Someone please remind me the name of this show. The name of this show is Risk, of course, where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. That was David Bucks you heard doing the rhyming. And the happy sounds you hear behind me now come from the Happy Hollows. On today's episode, stories from a Risk live show we did recently about breaking the rules, times we crossed the line. Our first teller is the amazing Christian Finnegan. Christian once broke some of his own rules about how to handle sex, drugs, and purple rain. For starters, let me say, group sex is not for everyone. Um, and when I say everyone, I mean me. Because uh, unlike uh, maybe, maybe Melanie, I, I was not, uh, not a particularly bold person. Uh, you know, I, I, I've never been much of a libertine. I, I've always, I didn't start drinking until three days before my 21st birthday. I, I have never smoked a cigarette in my life. And up until the age of 35, I had smoked pot maybe twice, which I'm quickly making a ground for now. Um, I've also always been a girlfriend guy. I've always been a, a person who's had a succession of long-term girlfriends or one-night hookups. And for some reason, I ethically stand by that as, as, the, as a good way to be. Because there's nothing wrong with sort of letting the, the capital R romance overtake you on the picnic table, whatever, what have you. Or, and there's nothing wrong with relationships. But there's always just seems something kind of like base and nihilist about like fuck buddies. You know what I mean? People who just got together sort of just sadly every once in a while to have sex. That never seemed appropriate to me. I always think, like, you should either want to fuck now, somebody you've never met before, or you should be in a relationship. And so Beth was the first casual girlfriend I, I had ever had. Um, she was a very nice person, and we would get together once every two weeks or so, and we would have dinner or go out to a movie, but that was kind of just a ruse to pretend that this was more than just us getting together to have sex. Um, Beth was also the first girl I knew who owned her own pornography, which I loved. She had one CD-ROM, uh, which I love. CD-ROM will go down as the uh, eight track of my generation. She had one uh, porn that she would watch occasionally and bust out, and I thought that was very cool. I will say for the record that Beth now is married with children, and she has a very successful company making homemade greeting cards. So this is a nice lady. Anywho, one night, Beth tells me that she would like us to go out on a double date with her two friends, whose names I do not remember, so I will just, for the sake of the story, uh, refer to them as Sonny and Cher. Um... <laughs> I knew very little about them. The only thing I knew about Sonny and Cher is that Sonny liked having Cher uh, fuck him in the ass with a dildo. That was the, that was the main piece of criteria I knew about Sonny, which I found hilarious. Um, I still find it kind of hilarious, because make no mistake, I'm not going to stand up here and pretend that I haven't enjoyed maybe a pinky once in a while, okay? I'm not going to... I'm not trying to be a hypocrite here. I, I, I am but human. Um, <laughs> but 
there is something wholly awkward and very overt about like I am now going to take this dildo and shove it in your ass. Like the, the hilarity of that just it, it's it's very goofy to me. But so that's all I knew about him. And whenever they would come up in conversation, I would look for funny sort of ways to mention it. Like, oh, he's a manager at a restaurant. Oh, does he manage to get a dildo into his ass? Or you know, oh, he lives down a Canal Street. Oh, you mean Anal Street? It was just sort of a fun thing that I would do whenever they come up in conversation. So now, but I was actually, I did not bust her balls about this because I actually took this as a sign. Oh my God, she wants to go out on a double date. This month must mean that we are venturing into actual relationship territory, which feels more kind of in line with my sort of personal code of ethics, that we are a couple now and we are going to do a couple thing. So I was very excited about it. And we met up with Sonny and Cher at a Mexican restaurant, which is, I think, perfect sort of double date kind of thing, you know, the fiesta atmosphere, the mariachis, the margaritas. And let me say for the record that I love frozen margaritas and I am sick of people shitting on them because as far as I'm concerned, yes, they're just slush puppies that get you fucked up. What is wrong with that? These are two things I love. So we have a grand old time and we're talking and he seems a little gay to me. I won't be, I won't lie to you, but I may have been projecting just knowing this about him. Like, you know, especially seeing like the waiter, like do a pepper grinder, but hey, like that, you know, you can't help but sort of make associations. Uh, as for Cher, Cher is what I would refer to as uh, girlfriend attractive. You know what I mean? Like, like not someone who I would necessarily have gone for, but you know, a perfectly normal looking person that would be someone's girlfriend. And I want to say for the record that I was no fucking prize either. I was about 265 at the time and uh, Beth was not, um, you know, we were four average to unattractive people getting together, <laughs> having Mexican food in the United States of America. And there's nothing wrong with that. So after the dinner, Beth says, let's all go back to my apartment and smoke some weed. And this was a big deal to me. That I had only smoked weed twice before in my life and I'd had horrible experiences with it both times. I just, and this is something I've learned now, that I cannot smoke weed around anyone who is still making up their mind about me as a person. Like... If I've never met you before and I'm never going to meet you again, fine. Or if you're like my wife, fine. But if you are still kind of like sizing me up, no fucking way. Because I am just going to be, what, is, what does this person think of me? So we go back to Beth's apartment and we crowd into her room because she has a roommate, Kim, who is very kind of anal and uptight and, and she, you know, we don't want to bother her. So the four of us uh, crowd into this tiny little room on 108th Street in Amsterdam and uh, we smoke some weed. And the way it affected me personally, you know that scene in Train Spotting where the guy shoots up heroin and he sinks into the carpet and he's sort of watching everything from about two feet? That's sort of how I felt. And I, it was kind of like... We were, I was sitting at the top of the bed, leaning against the wall, and Sonny and Cher were at the bottom of the bed, and they were playing this sort of awkward game where Cher would sort of grab for Sonny's belt, like, playfully, like, oh, I'm going to take your belt off. And he'd be like, oh, stop it, stop it, what are you doing? And it was like, sort of, like, what the fuck is going on? And then Beth gets up, goes over to the stereo, and puts on Darling Nikki by Prince. And that was the first moment where I was like, is this what I think it is? Beth then proceeds to go into this dance, this sort of undulating, vaguely, like kind of like, like a jungle woman heralding the arrival of Kong. <laughs> you know, kind of just back and forth, and, you know, and, and uh, 
Sonny and Cher are now just watching her intensely while Sonny runs his hand up and down Cher's thigh, very close to the sort of vag area. And, at, and as for me, I was leaning against the wall, comatose, like Denzel Washington in The Bone Collector. Like, I was very stationary. I was completely incapacitated with what was going on. And every once in a while, here's where I really knew that something was up. Because this was back in the, in the late 90s when women were wearing those sort of lobster bib tops. Do you remember that? Those tops that were just sort of a piece of fabric in the front and then they would sort of tie up on the back. And Beth had like undone the back of her top. And so as she was dancing, occasionally one of her boobs would pop out. Just sort of, and it's been my experience with women that women do not show one of their boobs unless they choose to show one of their boobs. That's not something that just kind of happens. You're like, oh, did you guys see that? Sorry about that. Like, it's definitely like, I want you to see this right now. And so that's why I thought to myself, oh my God, this is like an orgy. That this is not, Beth did not bring me, she did not ask me for a double date because she thought that like, oh, we're going to be a couple now. No, she thought, oh, this is just some guy I'm having sex with. This is the perfect situation for us to have some sort of sexy group sex kind of thing. And I didn't know how to handle this because I was totally baked and totally fucked up. And I, I, it's, it's totally always been against my sort of code of ethics. And I was trying to figure out what to do. And at that point, the song Darling Nikki ended. And we all kind of just stood there. We sat there, and Beth stood there for about a minute. And then she went back to the stereo and put on Darling Nikki again. <laughs> Let me just say right now, Darling Nikki, a very sexy song, but a little bit too on the nose for an orgy, I think. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it, it literally describes masturbating with a magazine. That's kind of like playing like that put me in coach song at a baseball game. You know, it's like a little too specific or like Toby Keith at a cross burning. It's just like right, it's like too in the wheelhouse. So she's playing Darling Nikki again and they start making out. Sonny and Cher start making out and Beth kind of like undulates over to the bed and she lays down on top of me and we start making out. And I would like to pretend, I know that I'm pretending like I was just like a, like a, per, a bystander in this process that all these people were weirdos and I was just like, what's, these prob- what's their problem? No, I was a participant. I will admit that I was making out with Beth and at a certain point I did have my hand down her skirt. I will admit that. And I think that you know, fingering qualifies as intent in a court of law. I think that if you were trying to prove that I was a willing participant in this group sex situation, fingering would count. Um, So anyway, at one point, we're all, they're making out and we're making out and I don't know, Darling Nikki has ended. I don't even know what was playing. Whatever's next on Purple Rain, I can't remember. And Cher decides that she's going to have another hit off the joint, which was up by Beth. And so she crawled across the bed, straddling my body and Beth's body to grab the joint. And I was like, this is where it starts. This is it. This is where it begins. She's going to start making out with Beth. And then I am going to somehow imply to Sonny that I don't want to make out with him. Um, And again, I will say, I was not in any way attracted to Cher. But I find that in a group sex situation, your standards will lower a tad. You know what I mean? You're, it's, it's sort of like last call times 10. And so Cher crawls across me, grabs the joint, and as she is taking a hit off the joint, farts in my face. 
in her defense, it was not, it was not a smelly fart, um, it, but it was audible. It was kind of like a bort, you know, like one of those. This, uh, word to the wise, do not eat Mexican food when you're planning on having group sex. That's a good, put that in your book. So I start cracking up. I'm high, that's hilarious to me. And I, I do remember very vividly saying, man, this evening just took a turn off of Interesting Street onto Weird Avenue. <laughs> and then we're all just kind of sitting there awkwardly. I think that Sonny and Cher probably maybe tried to make out a little bit. Or I think Sonny did. I think Cher was really horrified by the whole situation. <laughs> and we're all just kind of sitting there and we didn't really know what to do. And then Beth just stands up and she's like, you guys need to leave right now to Sonny and Cher. like, I'm sorry, you guys have got to go. As if the spell was broken all of a sudden. And I wanted to say to her, you know, I'll still fuck there. I don't care. You know what I mean? Like, I, you know, I'm, it takes more than a fart to take me off track. <laughs> but she makes Sonny and Cher, within two minutes, they've packed up their bags and they are out the door and Beth and I are in her bedroom and Beth quickly gets out of her clothes, puts on her biggest, like, granny panties and, like, fucking old Frankie Says Relax t-shirt or whatever it was that she sleeps in. <laughs> and crawls into bed and I thought to myself, wow, five minutes ago I was like a hair from having my first and only group sex experience and now we're just going to bed. And at that point I smelled something horrible all of a sudden. And before I knew it, Beth began projectile vomiting all over the bed, uh, all over me. Uh, all over the pillows, the sheets, everywhere. I'm talking like exorcist Linda Blair going for distance, at least two feet, vomiting. And so it was then left to me to get out of bed, completely stoned out of my gourd, and to strip her down. And she is completely passed out at this point. She's dead to the world. And I am literally taking her T-shirt off and wiping the vomit off of her face. And I take off all of her clothes, and I, and I leave her. I, she's on the bed, naked, with still just sort of stain all over her. And I take all the linens in her clothes. I don't know what to do, so I put them in the bathtub and I fill it with water. So now there is a tub that just has sort of a, a nice sort of film of wood chips across the top. And I remember thinking when I was looking at the tub, I said, this is the polar opposite of group sex right now. This is, these are like two ends of a continuum here. And I crawled back into bed, I crawled, got back onto the bed, because there were no sheets at this point, it's just the two of us on, an, on a completely bare mattress, and it stinks like vomit, and I didn't know what to do, so I left. I'm not going to lie to you, I left. I did make sure that she was on her side, so we avoided any sort of John Bonham situation, and I did leave a note on the bathroom uh, mirror that just said, Beth, I'm sorry, I couldn't sleep. I had to go, I had to go home. And then I said, P.S., hey, Kim, sorry about the bathtub. Uh, Kim was her roommate, of course. I imagine it would be a really awkward roommate conversation the next day. And I will say that I never saw Beth again, but I won't lie to you, I do believe that note I left maybe contributed to her starting her company making homemade greeting cards. Um, <laughs> and that's it. Thank you guys very much. Have a good night. Wood chips in the tub, folks. It's an audio show, but we do deliver plenty of imagery. Now, one reason I hope you enjoy the next story is that it's told by me. 
I call it Smashing Pumpkins. This took place on Halloween 1983. Uh, I was with a brand new group of friends. And it was well after trick-or-treating was over. And we were floating a Frisbee in a neighbor's swimming pool. And on the Frisbee was a note addressed to the young man there whose family owned the pool. His name was Rick. And the note read, Rick D. Dick. (laughs) And there was a candle on the Frisbee to kind of shed light on the note. And the candle was held in place by a turd. So I was 13, and I had recently lost my best friend, Ben, because I had very, very awkwardly and kind of half-assedly tried to come out of the closet to him and tell him I was gay, and he just got very weirded out and stopped talking to me altogether. And then I also kind of lost a couple other friends because they went off with him, you know? And we had been the little circle of guys at our school who, you know, just loved talking about, say, Oscar-winning movies (laughs) and Broadway musicals, (laughs) but no longer. So on this Halloween afternoon, I'm outside raking the leaves, and this disheveled kid called Ed rides up on his bike, and he says, Hey, Kevin. You want to hang out tonight? And I thought, huh, I'm being asked to hang out tonight with the insult group? That was what I called Ed and his friends, James and Sean, because all they ever did was insult the other kids at school. But I had nothing else to do that night, so I thought, All right, whatever. Well, we met at Sean's house, and sure enough, right away, it was just all they were doing was making fun of everyone we knew. And I was just a little awkward because, you know, I've always liked to think of myself as a nice guy. Well, James was the worst of the insulters. He was constantly reading about the Third Reich... And I remember he called Joe Degenbach, Jew Degenbach. Now, Joe Degenbach was a German Catholic, but it didn't, that was beside the point. And then Ed was just kind of like James's sidekick, the guy who agreed with everything he said, you know, like uh, Barney to his Fred. But Sean, the little guy, was this sensitive kid who, he was just kind of unstable. Uh, I knew that he had lit one of the bathrooms on fire at school. (laughs) And I also knew that if he got really upset at someone, he would bang his head against a wall repeatedly. (laughs) And I also knew that James and Ed mercilessly insulted Sean all the time. 
But then, kind of like a, um, an abusive relationship, they would make up for it by insulting his enemy, Rick, for example, by shitting on a Frisbee <laughs> and floating it in Rick's pool. Well, while we were, while I was collaborating with these guys on the Frisbee prank, you know, I thought it was mean, but I was laughing. And I have to say, we were laughing for hours that night. We went all through the night. And, and what the game plan became was destroying pumpkins. Uh, I remember... Uh, we took a switchblade that Ed had and we would change some of the facial expressions on people's pumpkins. And, uh, oh, I remember uh, uh, Ed, we had a, a Polaroid camera and we took a photo of Ed smearing his bare ass all over someone's uh, pumpkin and then we left that little Polaroid picture in their mailbox. <laughs> then we came to this house that had like at least two dozen pumpkins, just tiny ones, big ones. We took all of them and put them on the roof of the house across the street. <laughs> and we just got kind of high that night on the idea of shocking people. And then we came to the work mansion, W-E-R-K. Uh, this was the place where legend had it that Proctor met Gamble. <laughs> it was a huge place, and we saw that they had a pumpkin. They had one pumpkin in, on their gigantic porch there, and the thing was the size of the wheel of a 10-speed bicycle. I mean, it was just one of these things that, like, you would see at a county fair with a blue ribbon on it. And I said... Whoa, that would be a challenge. And James said, that's the challenge. And Sean, who was afraid that it was going to fall on him, said, Kevin's the new guy. Kevin should take the challenge. Well, I was getting kind of psyched up about all this damaging we'd been doing. And I said, oh, no problem. I'll take the challenge. Now, I had recently seen the movie Anti-Mame. <laughs> and I remembered that there's this line in it where Rosalind Russell says, Live, live, live. Life is a banquet. And most poor suckers are starving to death. Well, now, all of my old circle of friends knew that line by heart. But I certainly wasn't going to admit to the insult group that I had anti-mame going through my head when I decided to take the challenge. <laughs> so, the challenge was lit up as bright as day, and they had, like, you know, little burglar alarm signs all around the lawn. And it actually kind of looked like there were still people in there, awake, inside. The, the current... Uh, occupants of the mansion were just kind of mysterious. No one knew, you know, all that much about them. So there I was, I was crouching in the bushes, and, and I, I just got kind of psyched out a bit. I'm thinking, oh God, what do I say if they come out and catch me? But then, you know, the guys are in the other bushes, and they're like, come on, get a move on it, get a move on it. So I did. 
I zipped up there and I nabbed it. Well, it was the heaviest fucking thing I have ever carried in my life. It was absurd. I was just like kind of careening down the lawn as if I was attached to a cannonball. And finally, my legs just gave out and I just kind of dropped it in their bushes. But I hadn't been caught. So I was kind of exhilarated. I thought, you know what? I have just pulled like the biggest prank of the night. But then I thought, except that it wasn't insulting, you know? So I started thinking how I could improve on this. And I said to the guys, hey, why don't we put it in the middle of Harrison Avenue? Some driver is going to get a rude surprise. And they were laughing. And even though I still had mixed feelings about these guys, I was like, that's it. I'm becoming a real member of the insult group. <laughs> well, it took all four of us to very awkwardly like stagger out onto the avenue with this gigantic pumpkin. And we put it down there. And what we discovered as we were hiding in the bushes waiting for cars was that this thing was so fucking big. It's a giant orange circle that every driver was seeing it and just swerving around it. So it wasn't working, and we gave up. But just then, we heard the sound of a car racing down the road. And we caught sight of it, and it was one of these really big Lincoln luxury town cars. It looks like it's bulletproof or something. And, you know, the speed limit was probably like 35 or something. This guy was doing like 60 or something ridiculous. And we saw that the left wheel was going to hit directly into that pumpkin. And it did. Well, that car flew up like four feet into the air and then came crashing down and swerved and was heading right for a telephone pole when I stopped looking and started running. I had no idea what had happened. I didn't know what happened next. I was just aware that that sound, all I could think of was that sound when, it, when that wheel hit that pumpkin was such an awful thing. You know, it was a huge sound, like an explosion. And uh, I, all I could think of was like, maybe it hit another car, uh, maybe there were bodies twisted in the wreckage, maybe, maybe I'd end up standing in front of a witness, you know, stand looking at the survivors. Well, I went all the way home thinking, you know, that was the sound of possibly killing someone. And I'm laying in my bed and I just started thinking, at least, it was probably a good idea to rethink becoming a member of the insult group. <laughs> well, the next day, I talked to Sean, and he had gone back about 20 minutes after, and he had seen that 
there was pumpkin parts all over the place, but there'd been no accident. And a few weeks after that, I made up with my old best friend, Ben. And so our old circle of friends was back together, and we all got jobs working at the local movie theater. And one night, I got an idea for a prank that was more our style. So, on this particular evening at the movie theater, I skipped down the aisle of the cinema without a stitch of clothing on my body, singing the Rodgers and Hammerstein song, This Was a Real Nice Clam Bake. while the audience was too stunned to continue focusing on children of a lesser god. <laughs> and as I was putting my clothes back on that I had hid in the alley behind the theater, I was thinking, you know what? That was about as daring as anything I've done, and I didn't insult a soul just like anti-mame. Thank you. Oh, I almost forgot. Uh, you know, we have Ellison Park do a song after every, uh, after every story, but this one I thought maybe I should take myself. So let me uh, do my best here. <clears throat> This was a real nice clam bake. We're mighty glad we came. The vittles we ate were good, you bet. The company was the same. Our hearts are warm, our bellies are full, and we are feeling fine. This was a real nice clam bake, and we all had a real good time. Now, see, that's a fun fact there. You didn't know our podcast is bound in human flesh. Uh, more of that man's insights are at thisisdanrosen.com. Next up, we have a great actor. He was in Wet Hot American Summer, In and Out, and a few of Woody Allen's movies. So we thought we'd call this one Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the story of when I was uh, arrested for stealing from work. Um, somehow, my senior year in high school, uh, I discovered uh, that I had managed to amass enough credits to graduate a semester early, and was given that option and leapt at the option. Uh, and I think something in that made me sort of sort of triggered something in me that uh, I took it a step further and I made a plan. I was 17 years old and I made an enormous plan. Didn't have a lot of detail to it, but it was 
grandiose and audacious and romantic, and I was so enthralled with this plan that I actually sort of overshot my enthusiasm and actually became a little fearful of the plan and a little ashamed of the plan because it was so presumptuous and it was so cliched. But the plan was that I was going to go full-time at my job, my part-time job at the record store at the mall near my house. I was going to save my money, $3.65 an hour, for six months. <laughs> and then I was going to go to Europe on a 60-day Eurail pass with my best friend Gilles, who lived in Belgium. <laughs> and I think the part of the plan that may have made me sort of shrink in embarrassment the most was, I might not come back from Europe. Like, I might, who knows, I'm gonna Kerouac the shit out of this. I am gonna, you're not gonna believe it. And so, I started to put the plan in action. And I went full time, and I'm working at this record store at the mall. And two events precipitated me getting arrested for stealing from my job at the record store at the mall. The first one was that over Christmas, <laughs> the store was hit by a gang of professional thieves <laughs> who, in the course of about 30 seconds to a minute, stole 500 double CDs of the Beatles' White Album. <laughs> and this uh, was a big event. And uh, after the police came by and were like, yeah, you got robbed by some thieves, there's nothing we can do. Uh, the, the, the chain of stores wasn't going to take that. They sent their uh, head of security down to the store from their headquarters in Minneapolis to this store in Illinois. And we were all made aware of this, that this guy was going to come in and he was going to dust for prints and he was going to get to the bottom of this. And we were sort of scared to death, but none of us, the kids that worked in the store, we had nothing to do with it. But, you know, it was a big deal. And it was never a good thing when the head of security for the chain showed up at your store because somebody was getting fired. So he does this, but nothing really happens. He makes his determination and he leaves. But we all remembered that he had been there, and we all knew, and I swear to God I can't remember his name, but I call him Mickey because he looked just like Mickey Thomas from Jefferson Starship. <laughs> and uh, so uh, that was the one thing that happened. And then the next thing that happened was a few days after Mickey left, went back to Minneapolis, one of the employees, one of the other kids, said that they had found a child's wallet, and it had no ID in it, no library card, just $15. So we were all told, put it under the register and leave it there and wait for it to be claimed. So those were the two things that happened. And then for four or five months, nothing happened. And then four or five months later, it's May, and I'm like six weeks away from my plan. And I'm at work with my friend, Brian, and it's time for us to break for lunch, and we're starving and we're broke. And if there were ATMs in a mall in Illinois in 1988, we didn't have checking accounts to access through it anyway. So we remembered the wallet, and we took the money out, and we went up to the food court and went to One Potato Two and forgot about it. And two days later, I'm at work, and I get buzzed in the back to come to the back room. And I go back there, and sitting in this back room, which was maybe 60 square feet, triangular, fluorescently lit, covered in industrial shelving, and had a bathroom in it, <laughs> were sitting the manager of the store, a regional manager, 
a district manager and the head of security for the entire chain of stores. So I knew this was not good. I was invited to take a seat and the head of security, Mickey, says to me, I'm going to chuck a hypothetical your way. Because that was how he talked. He says, let's say you're the head of security for a major national retail music chain. You've got over 650 stores you're in charge of. Something goes wrong, you go investigate. 650 stores. You get called to a store in the middle of nowhere, Illinois, it's got to be quite an event. I think we all remember the White Album incident. Yes, I remember the White Album incident, Mickey. So you come down there, you check it out, you determine that is in fact what happened. But you've been in this game a while. You've been around the block a few times. You got a few tricks up your sleeve. You know about due diligence. So you look into the books a little bit, just matter of course, because you know there's got to be more going on than just external shrinkage shoplifting. There's got to be some internal shrinkage employee theft. So you look into that, and you find sure enough there is. So you got a couple more tricks up your sleeve. Did you know that nowadays, they make surveillance cameras with lenses so tiny, they can stick them in the pinhole in an acoustical tile. Look up there. How many cameras do you think we could have up there? I'm thinking, one? A thousand? I don't know. <laughs> you can run those puppies all day and then just sit back and watch the tapes. So when you've got enough evidence, you can close your dossier. You can come in there, clean house, sweep it out, take care of it, you're done. I like to do what I call a coin toss. You take a wallet. You let everyone know that this wallet was lost by a child. The employee that takes that wallet is the go time, is the go signal. You know you're dealing with weak moral fiber. That's when you sweep in, clean house. So he says, case closed. Wouldn't you say? Uh-huh. He says, you have two choices. You can call the cops, dump it in their laps, ruin these kids' lives, tear their families asunder. <laughs> or you can handle it internally. You know, a little more than a slap on the wrist. Maybe scare these kids a little bit. They'll lose their jobs. But I'll guarantee you, they'll never steal from work again. What do you think? Uh, I think we should handle it internally. <laughs> all right, great. So we're going to cooperate? Yeah, 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 we're going to cooperate. He says, all right, why don't you write down on this yellow legal pad a list, starting with the wallet, of everything you've ever stolen from work? And I hesitated for a second. And for those of you who are wondering, if you are wondering anything, why I didn't stand up and say, goodbye, I'm not doing this, it was because A, I was 17, B, I was scared to death of this, this Steven Seagal figure, <laughs> and C, I had stolen shit from work, and I felt horrible about it as I was doing it, and I thought about it all the time, and I knew that this was my comeuppance. And he's going to help me. He's going to help me. He's going to be my friend. He's not going to call the cops because obviously that's what you'd do. You'd call the cops. But he's not going to if I cooperate. 
but I hesitated. And at that moment, the manager of the store, who was kind of my buddy, and kind of I looked up to him, and I was realizing that I felt horrible still because I, had, I was letting him down. And I also realized he had been sitting in the corner, curled up in a chair, not speaking the whole time with his elbows on his knees and his palms pressed into his eyes, shaking his head like this. And he spoke the only time during this three-hour ordeal that was my interrogation. He said, they're not fucking around, Zach. <laughs> so I wrote the list, and I really wrote the list. I didn't want to lie to this guy. He was helping me. He was helping me. And if I, if I lied, he would catch me, and I would go to jail. So I really, really, really wrecked my brains to write everything on this list. And it was like 30 minutes of me sitting silently, going like this, uh, 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 while nobody said anything, and five adults stare at me. And I finally, after half an hour, produced the list, and it had on it the wallet. Three cassettes, one of which may or may not have been Malcolm McLaren's fans. <laughs> Two CDs, one of which was definitely Talk Talk's The Color of Spring. A Who Framed Roger Rabbit keychain, but not Roger or Jessica, the baby that smokes a cigar. <laughs> and a couple of buttons, because I really liked buttons. And after half an hour of really racking my brains, I give him this list. And he goes to put it away, and I think we're done. And he goes, ah, you know what? I'm not going to remember who wrote this list. Can you just print and sign your name underneath the list? And I'm like, we're so close to this being over. Yes, 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 and I do that. And then he goes to put it in his briefcase again. He goes, you know what? I'm never going to know what this list is. Could you just, maybe at the top of the page, could you just write a short paragraph explaining what this list is? And I hesitated again for the last time. And I couldn't have hesitated for more than a second. But then he was really on script. And he said, you know how we talked about cooperating? You know, did I get in at all to how the police will proceed if you don't cooperate? Uh, Jerry, can I have that piece of paper? And one of the managers hands him a piece of paper and he goes, you live at uh, 407 Wrightwood Terrace? You live with your parents, right? I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, the police are on hold right now. If I take them off hold, they're about 30 seconds away from your parents' house. They're going to tear that house apart, take every stick of furniture out of that house, leave it on your front lawn. They're going to tear that house into toothpicks until they find everything on this list. And even if they don't find everything on this list, you're still going to jail. How do you feel? Um, I had already started writing the paragraph when he read my address, you know. And uh, so I did that, handed it to him, and he goes, all right, call the cops. Cops came. Uh, led me in handcuffs. This was a two-story mall. It was several acres of a mall, an indoor mall. Led me from the store around both floors, all the way around, in handcuffs, behind my back, going, ah, I can't remember where I parked the cruiser, man. I'm sorry, I can't remember. <laughs> Took me on a perp walk through the whole thing. I go to jail. My mom bails me out. And they were so incensed and so outraged. They were mad at me. I had done something stupid, but I mean, come on. And they were like, we're getting you a lawyer. I'm like, okay, great, fine. They get a lawyer. I get a pre-hearing like a week later, and the lawyer takes me uh, up before the judge. And he says, we want, we want a hearing. His rights were violated. And the judge goes, you sure? And the lawyer goes, yes, Your Honor, we're sure. He goes, you really sure? And he says, yes. He says, okay. But just so you know, they arrested three other kids for the same thing, and they pled guilty the next day and paid a $100 fine, and they're done. Gavel. <laughs> He says, come back in September. And I'm thinking, all right, well, if I leave now, I can go on my thing. And I'm like, all right, thank you, Your Honor. And he goes, can't leave the county until your trial date, gavel. So I didn't go to Europe. 
I went to the court date, and uh, he was even more annoyed, the judge, same judge, if possible, uh, more annoyed with me than he was the first time, and uh, he had me pay a $2,000 fine. So that wiped out what I had saved for 365 an hour. And just as a, a really quick sort of addendum to the story, this, this, I mean, obviously, this was sort of a seminal event in my life, and it's sort of turned into an anecdote over the years that I would only tell occasionally. And it was always sort of the details of the story. I mean, you know, I was stupid, I did a dumb thing. Mickey was a fucking psychotic asshole. You know, and it was just, it was just really heavy-handed. All of which is true. But I, the epiphany that I had about this story was that when Kevin asked me to tell a story, and then I heard what the theme was, which I heard was breaking the law and not breaking the rules, but that's fine. Um, it was like, it has to be this story. And I thought, well, okay, so it's risk and it's all of that. And the best I can come up with about this is, I think I immediately internalized the entire event and turned it into sort of an anecdote. And what I'm realizing now, as I am probably the same age as Mickey was when he was doing this to me at 17. Uh, it's taken me this long to realize it wasn't just a seminal event. It may have been the seminal event in my life. It may have been the pivotal event in my life. And it all has to do with the plan. That was the last plan I ever made in my entire life. And I've had a wonderful life, and I will continue to have a wonderful life, but I've Ever since that day, I've been happy to be buffeted about by the winds of chance and not risk some sort of colossal failure, some sort of, to use my girlfriend's favorite term, epic shit show of failure, and just be the captain of a ship that then plummets to the bottom of the ocean. I've never done it since, and I've just been a happy-go-lucky guy. Thank you very much. Baby, baby, but baby, baby, Risk it. Risk it good. Stop. Risk it. R risk it real good. That was Stucky and Murray helping us here risk a lawsuit. By the way, Zach told me that he later found out those three other employees at the record store had stolen four big black garbage bags worth of CDs, thousands of dollars, whereas what he'd taken didn't even amount to three figures, literally a misdemeanor. Okay, well, one more look at breaking rules today. This one comes from a shining star of the storytelling scene in New York, the beautiful and captivating Faye Lane. This is called Devil's Food. About seven years ago, on Halloween night, I came face to face with the devil in Greenwich Village. And he offered to trade me my soul for a Hershey's chocolate kiss. You might think this is a no-brainer. Let me tell you a little story. As a little girl, I was obsessive about my Halloween candy. I would sleep with my orange plastic pumpkin in the crook of my arm. And then during the day, I would pour it out again and again on the bed, on the table, on the floor, and I would categorize my candy into groups and subgroups. <laughs> you had four basic categories. You had your crunchy candies, like Red Hots, Lemonheads, Nerds, Gobstoppers, <laughs> Sweet Tarts. 
you had your chewy candies, caramels, now and laters, um, starburst, chewy sweet tarts. You had your crappy candy, which would be like milkmaids, licorice, candy corn, dots, really. And those nasty little wafer coins that look and taste like Tums. But don't get me wrong, I love those too. I even love the crappy candies. And then of course you had your ultimate candy category, which was your creamy candy, also known as chocolates. Fun-sized Snickers, Milk Duds, Twix, little Reese's peanut butter cups, and those perfect little foil-wrapped chocolate kisses. I loved Halloween candy, but I didn't just love Halloween candy, I loved all candy. And I didn't just love candy, I loved all food. <laughs> and I grew up in Texas, land of chicken fried steak and banana pudding, basically chicken fried everything, pecan pie. So really early on, my weight became an issue. But not just my weight, my crazy ass food behaviors. If you ever come home to Texas with me for the holidays, you will hear stories about my crazy childhood food behaviors. My mama will tell you, that child would eat anything that wasn't nailed down. Her first word after mama was not dada, it was chicken. <laughs> and my daddy will tell you, when she was just a little bitty thing, she climbed up, got in the medicine cabinet, and ate an entire bottle of bear baby aspirin. We had to take her to the hospital. She said they tasted like little orange candies. And my sister will gleefully tell you, oh my God, y'all might not believe this, but one time when she was in kindergarten, she ate an entire box of our poodle's milky bones. <laughs> I did. And as I remember, they were crunchy and delicious. <laughs> so I could pretty much hide my crazy food behaviors, but after a while I started getting fat and you cannot hide that. So pretty early on, I learned how to diet. And I went on my first diet when I was nine years old. It was Weight Watchers. And it worked for about two weeks. They all worked for about two weeks. The Atkins diet, the banana diet, the cabbage soup diet, the Cambridge diet. But there always came a point when a banana moon pie or a red velvet cupcake just looked so much better than being thin felt, you know? And more specifically, there always came a moment when breaking the rules felt so much better than trying to be good. So I pretty much spent the greater part of my, of my life either on or cheating on a diet. But all that changed one day when a girlfriend swore me to secrecy uh-oh. <laughs> and dragged me to her food addiction compulsive eating recovery group. They met in this dusty church basement on the Upper East Side. And it was a whole room full of people sitting in a big circle 
talking about their crazy-ass food behaviors. I couldn't believe it. This whole room full of people, some of them were even crazier than me. But they looked so normal and productive. You know, they seemed to have a solution. They said, you are a food addict. This kind of glamorous Jaja type lady took me aside and she said, darling, you are with food like the alcoholic is with the alcohol. You just can't eat certain food. And then this cab driver from Jersey put his arm around me. He's like, look, we don't know why this is. Maybe it's some kind of food allergy, insulin resistance, I don't know. But certain people cannot handle certain kinds of food, and you are one of those people. And the main problem is sugar. Do not eat sugar. You eating sugar is like letting a tiger out of a cage. You might not be able to get it back in. <laughs> They had this really specific food plan that was mostly protein, vegetables, salad, fruit, very little grains, no sugar, no flour, very, very few, no fun, <laughs> very few carbohydrates. But their bottom line rule was never take the first compulsive bite. And they had all these little tricks to help you do that, which were awesome, like diet soda. This lady said, diet soda. I don't care if you have to drink four gallons a day. Drink your diet soda and keep gum in your mouth all the time. So I did, and guess what? It totally worked. Weight was falling off of me, and I felt this clarity and this focus I had never felt before. I didn't even think about food except for meal times. I went to a family reunion in Texas, surrounded by all that good food, and I sat there with my diet soda and my gum, which was chewy and delicious. I was fine. I didn't even need all that food. I went to London for my birthday, and I took all my food in little Tupperwares, and my birthday cake was made out of pumpkin, wheat germ, and Splenda. It was nasty and delicious. Everything was great. Losing weight, feeling fantastic. Everything was fine. You counted days in this program, and my days were racking up really fast. The big deal day was day 90. At day 90, they would give you a golden coin and a big ceremony, and they would celebrate you for, for, for illustrating your commitment to recovery. And after day eight, you could talk in the meetings. So on day nine, I told the story about how when my grandpa gave me a $100 bill for candy, and or actually he gave me a $100 bill. He said, you could buy whatever you want in the whole world. And I went to the grocery store, and I came back with two giant bags of candy, just grocery bags full of candy. And I told on day 18 the story about one time when I wanted a whole birthday cake to myself, but I felt embarrassed about it, so I had the lady at the bakery write on it, Happy Birthday, Franklin. <laughs> and on day 60, I told the story about how when I would order Chinese food, and I would be ordering a lot, and I'd be embarrassed about it, I would pretend like there were other people there. I would say, mm-hmm, yes, the Mushu and the General Zos. Hold on one second. Do any of y'all want egg rolls? <laughs> <laughs> 
So my days are racking up. I'm doing really well. I'm almost day 90. On day 89, I swear to God, that's where the devil came in. My husband and I were at the Greenwich Village Halloween Parade. And as always, the costumes were incredible. But the best costume was the devil. This guy was freaking me out. He had horns. It looked like real horns implanted into his skull. He had these red bloodshot eyes and yellow opaque contact lenses. And he was really buff and bare-chested on top. And on the bottom, he was hairy like a goat. And I don't know how he did this, but it looked like he had cloven hooves. He saw me staring at him, and he hobbled over, and he grabbed my wrist, and he said with his nasty yellow teeth, in this creepy voice, I feed on innocent souls. You look innocent. I'll trade you your soul for a kiss. Then he lifted my hand and kissed it, and he turned it over and he placed something in my palm. A perfect little foil-wrapped Hershey's chocolate kiss. And I looked at that thing, and the last 89 days flashed in front of me. All the times when I wanted to take that first compulsive bite and I didn't do it. And I saw the faces of all my friends in the food group. And I thought about how disappointed they would be if I ate it. And how worse than that, I might be letting a tiger out of a cage. If I ate that chocolate kiss, I could be letting that tiger out of that cage and I might not be able to get him back in. I might not be able to stop eating. And I might gain back the weight I have lost and even more. And I might get up to 200, 300, 400 pounds. What did I know? Maybe I wouldn't fit in the bathtub. Maybe I would go on an airplane and I'd have to ask for an extra extender belt. Maybe I would be that person in an elevator who people look at nervously and then look at the max capacity sign. And even worse, the symbolism of it was not lost on me. It was the devil asking for my soul. I just had to eat it. I had to. I pulled that little paper tail and I took the foil off and I put that thing in my mouth. I don't know why. I think maybe more than a compulsive eater, I'm a compulsive cheater. And I think I'm just addicted to breaking the rules. But for whatever reason, I put it in my mouth and that sweet milk chocolate melted on my tongue and feel-good chemicals coursed through my body. <laughs> And the devil threw his head back, laughing. He said, thank you. I have eaten your soul. And then he ran off into the night in search of more food. And guess what? So did I. Thanks.
Yes, please tell somebody you know to put Risk on their iPod or phone. It's free, it's uncensored, and there's a new one every other Tuesday. And don't forget to donate what you can at the Support Us page at risk-show.com. And if you're in New York, come see us at 92Y Tribeca on Hudson Street on February 11th and every other Thursday after that. Risk is created and hosted by me, Kevin Allison. Our producer is Michelle Walson. Our sound engineer is Nick Montalbano. Our episode editor is Mike Cades. Our story editors are Jeff Mersel and Andy Croner. Our associate producers are Timothy Meehan, Emily Altman, and Madison Perry. And don't forget what the Hindus say about Risk. Even a dead elephant is worth $900,000. <laughs> Dear God. <laughs> All right. One more motherfucking time. <laughs>